0: This big swing and miss, nearly swung myself off my feet. And Paul Mooney's slower ball was so slow that it just sort of bounced about 10 or 12 times before it got to the keeper. So, that first ball of that final was probably the worst advert for associate cricket you could ever see because it was just so village, I guess.
1: Welcome to another Cricket Scotland podcast. I'm Jake Perry. My guest this week is one of the great names of Scottish cricket, a Hall of Famer with 119 caps for the national side, who has now marked the next stage of his career by releasing his first book, The Survival Guide for New Teachers, which draws on his experience to offer some advice to those following in his footsteps into the teaching profession. Paul Hoffman, it's a real pleasure to speak to you. How are things with you today? Hi there,
0: Jake. Uh, It's a pleasure to, to join you with this lovely drink day here in the west of Scotland so I'm finding myself trying to uh, do new things and experiment with with new things and I, I guess that's how the book came about. It was a few months ago I was just sitting in the lounge room at the start of lockdown and I, I said to my wife I said I wouldn't mind just write, writing a book about my journey with teaching so far And and she thought that was a bit random but I've been teaching now for five or six years, and initially it was a real struggle. I had to go out of my comfort zone 100%, and I had to adapt to a different environment, totally different to what I'd been used to previously with my other jobs. And it, it was tough, and I, I just felt as though writing a book could help a lot of teachers who were probably in the same situation as I was five or six years ago, just starting out their teaching journey and finding it a real struggle and and finding ways to, to get through it. And there's ways that I was able to adapt strategies that I used. And I thought, well, why not share this with other teachers who are in the same position I was? My wife and I worked in a cafe. We owned a cafe just outside of Rockhampton in Queensland. And she said to me one day, after I was helping one of our staff, because a lot of our staff were casual students that that went to the local high school. And I used to help them with their English essays. And she said, I don't know why you didn't become a teacher. And and that was a light bulb moment for me when I thought, well, why not? Because I'm not particularly enjoying the, uh, the cafe working environment. It was a tough shift there, owning a cafe seven days a week, 12 hours a day. So I went back to university and, I was lucky enough to, to get accepted because about 15 years before that, I'd graduated with uh, a Bachelor of Arts majoring in journalism and communications. And I was able to get my application approved because I had experience with, with journalism and communication. So that got me through with the English. But I've also got a level three coaching certificate with the ECB. So that was able to get me through in the PE side of things. So in Australia, I graduated as a uh, an English teacher and a PE teacher. So I could teach both subjects over there. It was back in 2015. And that's how it came about really, just me helping staff in our bakery cafe and my wife saying to me, I don't know why you didn't become a teacher. So it was a, a moment where I thought, okay, let's try that journey because uh, I felt as though I needed something different. And I went ahead with it, and I haven't looked back really.
1: well, many congratulations on the book which i'm I'm reading at the moment. I was struck by some parallels that had never really occurred to me before. um People talk about cricket as being a game played by individuals in a a team context. Is the same sort of thing true of teaching, do you think
0: Yeah, I think so, because teaching it involves you being involved in a team environment in in the staff lunchroom and and that has its own dynamics and its own different personalities some strong some not so strong and it was difficult getting a foot in there because it was a bit like going into a new cricket dressing room and you know and and you're uh trying to you know trying to suss people out people are trying to suss you out initially when I started teaching in Australia it was it reminded me of a typical cricket room environment where I had a few guys in there that I'd played cricket together many years ago, and so it was a very relaxed, harmonious lunch room for for staff to relax and to chat, whereas when I came over here, I found that it was a lot more difficult to to get settled. I was out of my comfort zone. I didn't know anyone. So it's a bit like a cricket team environment, I guess. Starting up with a new team, a new bunch of blokes, you know, it's always difficult to to know how to approach these situations sometimes because when you're out of your comfort zone, you, you can make decisions that, uh, maybe down the track, you'll think back and you'll think, well, why did I do this or why did I do that? But I just tried to remain true to myself, I guess, as cheesy as that sounds. And and I'm not by any means an extrovert in the changing rooms. I was one of the guys who was, you know, fairly quiet. I'd sit down and I'd try and zone in on what I had to do out in the field. Uh, I didn't really have a lot of input because that was normally left with. Craig Wright and Ryan Watson, Dougie Lockhart, Gavin Hamilton, Dougie Brown, these sort of guys who are a lot more outspoken than me. And and, and I guess when I went into teaching, I was reliving some of those moments in the changing room where where you've got the characters who who say a lot and you've got the other characters who maybe don't say too much but quietly go about doing their own thing. And and I was definitely one of the, the latter. So, yeah, there's definitely parallels between the cricket changing room and a, and a teaching staff room because there's just so many different personalities and and not all those personalities are, are going to gel so uh, they were probably the more difficult times of my initial teaching career I think as a new teacher you know sometimes you you could get treated as as an easy touch and, and you'll get the the rubbish timetables and, and you know we get all the jobs that no, none of the other teachers want to do like take the worst classes but I just tucked it up and just got on with it. I didn't, I didn't want to complain. And the school I was at back in Rockhampton in Queensland was a pretty tough school. It was one of the public schools, and a lot of the kids there come from very poor backgrounds and uh, broken families. And the behaviour for many of those kids was a challenge, especially in my first year. And I found that coming over here, it wasn't actually so bad because I was told that. The first school I taught at in Scotland, I was told that it was a, a tough shift. But compared to the school I taught at back in Rockhampton, it, was, it wasn't actually that bad.
1: I suppose the, the mechanics of it all, of education, boils down to relationships. And you'd say the same, I suppose, about the best cricket teams uh, as well. You use a really nice analogy in the book. Uh, when you talk about the best staff rooms as being like stepping into a cosy pub on a winter's day. When you were playing, what was the the ideal dressing room environment to be involved in?
0: Firstly, it's always good to be in a winning dressing room environment because no matter what people say, I mean, we play cricket because we enjoy it. But first and foremost, we play because we're competitive and we like to win. It's always found that when you're winning games, the dressing room was was so much better and then when you're, when you're on a losing streak everyone's quiet and then that's when things can start to break down but the dressing rooms that I've been in especially with Scotland and also for Uttingston the guys have been really close we used to especially with Scotland we used to travel quite a lot down to the counties playing in the I can't remember what it was called the tote sport or the B one day comp down there and we we traveled a lot together and so we used to go out dining together using whatever spending money that we had from Cricket Scotland, which was normally around 20 pounds, I think, a night or something like that. So we uh, we made the most of it and we, we spent a lot of time together. And I think that's the key. So there's an old slogan saying, you know, a team that drinks together wins together, which, you know, I, I guess is right. Not all of us are drinkers, but I guess that just means that a team that hangs out together more get gets to know each other more gets to feel a lot more comfortable around each other in a team environment in a dressing room environment that will help in terms of having that harmonious atmosphere but it, it always helps when you've got a blend of different characters and and we were lucky especially with with Scotland because we had those characters that I mentioned funny characters Gavin Hamilton he was always hilarious and Dougie Lockhart and Razor Watts was, I used to call him the fruit fly because he was just a pest, but he was one of these pests, He he was just likeable, he wasn't one of these pests that I wanted him to go away because he was good fun. So we had these guys that we just spent so much time together off the field that we built this relationship together as a team. And I think when we won the World Cup qualifying tournament in Ireland in 2005 and then during that period of two to three years where we had a really strong settled team you know that was one of the best teams i played with not just in terms of performance on the field but in terms of the dynamic and the relationship that we had off the field as well which transcended into the changing room so yeah it was those were good days I mean, and Uddingston as well is very similar we've got characters in Uddingston that you know will just lighten up any changing room I think most teams have those characters, and it's usually down to these characters like Roddingston, Brian Clark, and Amir Gull, stalwarts of the club, who know the right things to say at the right time. So having those guys in really helps as well. But those those characters that I spoke about with Scotland were the glue, I guess, that held us together when things weren't going so so well.
1: You're an integral part of of those teams and, as you say, one of the most successful Scotland teams that there has been. You first arrived here as an overseas player. How did it all come about to begin with?
0: Yeah, I know. I could probably write a book about that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I would, uh, it was in 1996. I was a professional at Colwyn Bay in North Wales. We played in the Liverpool League. And I had a sponsored car, and it was, had my name on the side, and I had Colwyn Bay Cricket Professional, and it had a slogan which said, The Pro That Knows which I didn't make up. It was just a slogan that the, the garage that gave me the car put on there. But my sister was over with me back in 1996 when I was playing cricket and she was staying with me in Colwyn Bay. And one afternoon, it was a similar afternoon to this where it was just cold and wet. We decided to go for a drive up to Scotland and we went up to Inverness and stayed at Pitlochry, and went back down again, back to North Wales. But At the time, I I thought, this is such a beautiful country. Do they play cricket here? I I haven't really heard a lot about cricket in Scotland. So it stayed in the back of my mind. And when I went back to Australia in uh, September 1996, I was working for my father. My father was a land surveyor, and I was doing some work for him. And my dad had his office right next to the house. So what I did was I, I phoned up Cricket Scotland, or I think they were called the Scottish Cricket Union back then, and I asked for their fax number, and I sent over my own cricketing CV. I didn't go through agents or anything like that, just my own cricketing CV. Sent it to Scottish Cricket, and then they forwarded this resume on to a number of clubs around Scotland. And it was the cricket president of Uddingston a bloke named David Baxter, who's still involved with the club, but David Baxter remembered my car from North Wales because... David and his family went on there on holiday in 1996, and he saw the slogan on the side of the car, and I think that stuck in his mind. And when he saw that fax come through, his ears sort of—he he probably thought, "Well, let's give this guy a go because if he was playing in the Liverpool League, he must be okay." And I think on my cricketing CV, I had—you know—had the fact that I'd played. I was in the New South New South Wales. Shield squad for a number of years when they were at their peak in the early 90s and I played for the Australian country team and in 1991 it, I won a uh, fast bowling competition at the Gabba when I was just 21 and I went on to the national fast bowling final at, at the SCG which was during the lunch break of Australia versus India in a, in a one-day game I think it was so I had these things on my CV and I were looking for a, a fast bowler who could slog it a bit and and I fitted the bill there, so I got the the word from I think David Baxter actually phoned me up when I was back home in Rockhampton and said that the club would love to have me over here, and so that was it. Really, I just took that opportunity and and went with it. And now, twenty two, twenty three years later, I'm I've spent the best part of I guess I did go back to Australia for three or four years, but I've spent the best part of twenty years at Uddingston and I've never felt like leaving the club at all. They've, they've always been a big part of my journey in Scotland and I've got really close friends from the club and I'm now the president of the club. So it's a big part of my life now, the cricket club. And I just didn't think that that, you know, looking back 96, when I drove through in the middle of Glasgow with my sister, we got lost and I wouldn't have thought that 23 years later we'd be, or I'd be living in, in Uddingston and enjoying life as a 50 year old being a teacher and still involved with the club.
1: It's an amazing story, isn't it? <laughs> just how little things, little coincidences, can just completely change your life. Yeah. So your Scotland debut came in two thousand and one, and as we've we've said, you were you were part of the side that had that fantastic run in the middle part of the of the decade, the winning the I Cup in in two thousand and four, and the ICC Trophy in in two thousand and five. What are your memories of those particular competitions?
0: Yeah. 2005 ICC World Cup qualifying tournament. That was probably my favourite couple of weeks of cricket that I've, I think I've ever had. Two weeks in Ireland, playing in really good conditions, lovely grounds. And the best part about it was, apart from the fact that you know I was playing in a team full of what I call my close friends, a lot of supporters from Uddingston were also there. So David Baxter was there with his wife and and some other supporters as well. Uh, so to share those moments, those moments that were so special to me with loyal club supporters from Uddingston, as well as my mum and dad who had travelled from Australia to be there, that was really special. But I guess the thing that I remember most in that 2005 qualifying tournament was the fact that I opened the batting with Fraser Watts. And, and this was just an experiment that the coach at the time, Andy Moles, thought he would try because with the fielding restrictions in one day cricket, where you're only allowed two outside the inner circle. I was always a dasher when I'm batting. As a bowler, I was very sort of disciplined and stuck to a fairly robotic routine of line and length and testing the batsman out. Whereas a batsman, I was totally the opposite. I was a free spirit and I'd like to try and hit as many fours and sixes as I could. So Andy Moles tried me as an opening batsman just before the ICPC World Cup tournament. And I did okay, so he stuck with it. And Fraser and I, because we were such good friends off the field, we formed a fairly good partnership on it. And we won every game through to the final. We played against Ireland in the final. And they had a really good team of Owen Morgan and William Porterfield. Ed Joyce, Dom Joyce, Jeremy Brace. So they had a really good... Trent Johnson, former New South Wales player. So they had a really good team. But I just remember that final because Fraser and I opened the batting and I took the first ball, as I always do. So the first ball, I had it in my head that I was going to try something different. So I charged Paul Mooney, who was opening the bowling. I charged him first ball. I ran down the wicket to him because I thought he's not going to be expecting that. But Paul was one step ahead of me. He bowled a slower ball the first, <laughs> the first ball. I had this big swing and miss. I nearly swung myself off my feet. And Paul Mooney's slower ball was so slow that it just sort of bounced about 10 or 12 times before it got to the keeper so that first ball of that final was probably the worst advert for associate cricket you could ever see because it was just so village I guess is the <laughs> word but anyway I went on to score 20 I don't think or around 20 in that game unfortunately I had to my bat broke in the final so I had to I didn't have two bats I only had one bat because I'm not a top order batsman and when my favourite bat broke uh, I think 12th man. I can't remember who it was. It might have, might have been Kyle Kutzer came out with a bat that was far too light. Anyway, I got out shortly after. I blame the bat, but <laughs> we ended up scoring 320 and we won it fairly comfortably in the end. But what was the tournament you mentioned there? The so 2004
1: Inter- Intercontinental Cup.
0: Yeah, again, that was that was a great tour. We we're at the peak of our powers, then, and Kyle Kutzer and Fraser Watts opened the batting. We had Dougie Brown, Gavin Hamilton were able to play for Scotland after they'd played for England, I don't know, four or five years previously. So having those guys back in the team was, was great because they added that experience and another voice in the dressing room as well. Dougie especially was a calming influence. So those guys pretty much sort of rounded off what a great team we had. It was almost the perfect team. And and we played Kenya in Abu Dhabi and I think it's, I can't remember the stadium, but it's, it was a great stadium, really flat pitch. Fraser Watts and Colin Kutcher went out there and scored a lot of runs. And and then uh, I think I ended up taking five for five off five point something overs, which I remember well. I think I've got that in my Twitter, p and five, 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 It was five overs, five for five, I think. It, was, it wasn't my best figures for Scotland, but I think it was you know probably the, the most eye-opening figures I ever had. It was one of the few times where I was able to swing the ball. I don't know what happened, but I was able to swing the ball both ways. And, yeah, that was something to, to look back on fondly. And we ended up winning that game by an innings and so many runs. And Fraser what scored 170 or 180. And I thought he would have got man of the match. But, unfortunately, when Fraser got out, he was given out. I think it was LBW. And he had a bit of a, a wobbly as he was walking off. He threw his bat. And, was swearing and cursing, so I think if Fraser had just taken the, ch- taken the, the decision it walked off as he should have he probably would have got mad of the match, but I ended up mad of the match with that one but then in the final we played Canada who had a really strong team at that time as well we played them in dubai and and I was roommates with John blaine and I think I was well I don't think I know I was roommates with John Blaine for much of my Scotland career and and, and John at that point of his career was as quick as any fast bowler on the county circuit. And that finally probably bowls the quickest spell that I've seen, in, that I've played with, or that I've played with in the same team as me. Probably wasn't as quick as back does spell against us in 2003 at the Grange, but John bowled a really quick spell, as in but at the other end was swinging the ball both ways, and they got us off to a really good start. And, and we dominated the game pretty much from then on. So that was a really good tour and that gave us, I think, a lot of confidence and then we went on for the next couple of years virtually unbeaten, I guess, against the associate countries.
1: You also played in the World Cup in 2007. I spoke to George Salmond about the 1999 World Cup on the podcast a few weeks back. Fair to say 2007 wasn't such a happy experience for Scotland on the on the field necessarily, but what are your, your memories of that competition?
0: Yeah, it was, uh, I think mean, it was great going to a Cricket World Cup. I still remember in 2005, you know, when we realised after we beat Namibia that we were playing in the World Cup, the feeling of elation and, and relief, I guess, having qualified for the World Cup was, you know, I can vividly remember those, those moments when we beat Namibia and we celebrated. So uh, I guess, you know, leading up to the World Cup, what I wanted anyway was uh, was for us to to do something special and possibly beat Australia or South Africa, uh, because we had at that time a really good team, albeit, I guess, a few of us were on the wrong side of 30, which was a bit of a shame, I guess, but we went into the World Cup full of confidence and we we're really fit. We spent a lot of time together leading up to it. We went to Kenya for a tournament which we've done really well at. We had a pre-season camp which we all worked really well and we we're all extremely fit and, and all healthy and body and mind. So but looking back on it, it was one of those situations where after winning the 2005 World Cup qualifying tournament, you would think that we'd be drawn in a an easier group, but unfortunately, we had probably the two best one day teams in the world at the time, Australia and South Africa in our group. Whereas Ireland, who we beat easily in the 2005 qualifying tournament, they were drawn again. I think it was Pakistan, who are, as we all know, very hit and miss. I think the West Indies, who at that stage were not the West Indies that we'd know, you know, the fears and pace attack, they were they were fairly ordinary back then as well. So it just felt as though we got the rough end of the draw. And when we had to play Australia for uh, It was always going to be a tough ask. But I just remember going out to take the first over. And I realised then that this ground is absolutely tiny. It's just like playing in a, a ground that we have in Scottish club cricket. And the pitch itself just didn't have any grass on it. It was very shiny and very hard. And I thought, oh, my God, what what's in here? Because... I was opening the bowling to Hayden and Gilchrist and, and I knew that we were going to come out as hard, but uh, we actually didn't do too bad against Australia with the ball. We They, they snuck away a bit at the end in the last few overs. Brian Watson in particular took us to the cleaners and I think they ended up scoring, I can't remember off the top of my head, three twenty, three thirty, And we thought at one stage we were going to restrict them to under 300, but even 330 was i thought you know a decent effort given the condition uh but unfortunately when we batted we struggled especially against their extra pace they had sean's pace, they had uh, glenn mcgrath and brad hogg with his you know mystery googly's and leg breaks. so I think we realized then you know that we had to really be on song in every aspect of the game in order to push them close not just not not just to beat them, so it was difficult for us because we we're drawn against Australia and South Africa, and you know that was that was always going to be a tough ask. I think after losing to South Africa, we we then played Holland, and the most disappointing thing about that tour was the fact that we played Holland, who I don't think we'd lost against Holland for the previous three or four years before that, and unfortunately on the on the day that we played Holland, it was raining in the morning and and they won the toss and they put us into bat and the wicket was doing quite a bit and, and we had one of these batting collapses which uh, which was disappointing and I think we barely scraped over 100 or 120 or something like that and by the time we went out to bowl it was, the, the pitch had flattened out and it was dry and so yeah, the, it didn't happen for us unfortunately that cricket world cup which was disappointing when I look back at it, it was great to have the experience of playing in the world cup but I think our performances probably didn't uh, probably didn't show how good a team we were at the time. We probably peaked a couple of years before then, and guys like myself, you know, when I, when I was bowling, I kept on looking up to the speed gun to see if I could break eighty mile an hour, and I I couldn't. Whereas two or three years before that, in, in the fourth games that were on Sky Sports, I was bowling 83, 84 miles per hour. So I guess it's... a couple of years different at that stage. I think some of us probably felt as though uh, the peak of our careers was a little bit behind us and the World Cup came a little bit too late for us. But we tried our best and we were just unlucky with the draw, I think, and unlucky that some of the circumstances that we came up against. And after the World Cup finished, you know, the one thing I wanted to do is to reflect and see what we can do better as a team, you know, I wouldn't be involved, but some of the other guys were still going to be involved at the next World Cup, uh, which I think didn't turn out to be until 2015. So I guess good memories, but with the team that we had, it was just disappointing that we couldn't showcase the ability and the talent that we had on the world stage.
1: Yeah, I mean, as you say, you you played on for another couple of months or so, but 2007 did turn out to be your, your last year. Uh, for Scotland, Your last appearance in fact against India, that one off ODI at, at Titwood, um, the likes of Ms Dhoni and Dravid and yuraj Singh and so on not, not a bad way to sign off
0: yeah i think I think that felt like the right time to do it because we we're playing in Glasgow we we're playing against India, and we had a lot of supporters you know in the u k in Glasgow, a lot of traveling support as well. it was televised in India, and it just felt like the right time to say for a while because I knew I wasn't playing in the 2020 World Cup later on that year. So I just thought at the age of 37, I'd only recently, well, I was planning to get married that October, so I was up, which you know, I thought, well, it's time maybe now to take a backward step in cricket and focus on work and, and family. So I think that game in particular felt like the right time to, to bow out. And I was lucky enough to share it with a lot of the guys that i shared that journey with in the last five to six years before that. And the umpire, one of the umpires at the time, Ian Gould, he did a nice gesture. He he got one of the cricket stunts signed by the Indian players and gave it to me. and uh, I've still got that. So, yeah, it was a, a nice way to sign it off. It's a shame we didn't win that game. But once again, we just performed okay, but we just weren't good enough especially against those, those top-tier players. Unfortunately, Sachin Tendulkar didn't play that game. He was, he was rested, but I didn't get a chance to bowl at him, but I got the chance to bowl at some of the greatest batsmen I think that have ever played for India. So, and I took one wicket. No, I didn't, actually. <laughs> I didn't take a wicket, but I kept the runs down. I think I'd bowled nine overs, none for 40 or something like that. Uh, yeah, I did get hit for a six, which... I still remember. I remember it because uh, the ball hit one of the someone in the crowd, which I was quite concerned for. But they were okay in the end. But that was that was one memory of the game, I guess. That uh, finished finished my career with Scotland. But I continued on with Scotland after that, not as a player, but I was the analyst in two thousand and eight when Pete Staindall was the coach. So I stayed involved with the players, which was great because I, I was still able to join in with the training sessions and give a few of the bowlers some hints and tips here and there but i think i did the analyst job for 12 to 18 months before i had to pack that in because again it was taking up too much of the time that i should have been spending at home and at work so
1: and just one final question really i mean you finished with a 142 odi first class list day wickets as well as Hatful of others in in all competitions, but when you look back on your Scotland career, what's what's your overriding emotion?
0: I'm trying to think about. I Overriding emotion, I guess, is it's, uh, it's it's one of joy, something I was extremely proud to be involved with. Something that sort of fell upon me. I didn't come over to Scotland in '97 with the intention of playing to Scotland. I only came over to play cricket for Addington five months and then I was going back to Australia, so I ended up staying over here and it wasn't until 2001 I was working at Lloyd's TSB Bank as I it at the time and I got a phone call from Jim Love and Jim Love who was a Scotland coach at the time said to me, have you got your passport up the well it's at home and he said could you photograph every you page of your passport and send it, back it to- through to the Scottish Cricket Office because I wanted to play this weekend down in uh, Arundel in the I can't remember what it was called it, it, in a tournament against the English amateurs, Wales, Ireland uh, might have been called the Poor Nations or something like that. But, and that was, that just came out of the blue. And well, I guess that was June or July 2001. It might have been actually August. So August 2001, and that was the start of a. Six to seven-year journey that I'll always remember with great fondness, not just because of the success we had on the pitch, especially between 2002 to 2006, but because of the the lifelong friendships that I've made. So it's a feel, it's the emotion of you know satisfaction, joy. Uh, We had the tough times as well. Uh, We had a couple of losses which were hard to take, especially. In those early years, and finishing off again in Glasgow with with all my close friends was was just a fitting way. So, yeah, I mean the overriding emotion there would be just sheer joy and happiness. I guess it, the friends that I've made and, and the wonderful times that we had on the cricket field, and it was just something that you know I'll, I'll never forget. And I'm glad I made the decision to come over here back in 97 because you know, the way things have turned out.
1: Well, Paul, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Um, I wish you every success with the book. Uh, It deserves to do really well. The Survival Guide for New Teachers. How do people get hold of a copy?
0: It's available through Amazon. I've published on Amazon Books, so amazon.co.uk, and it's available on Kindle and paperback. And, yeah, it's going well. I I haven't said this very often, especially when it comes to batting, but I'm nearly at triple figures, so... I can just get a few more sales and I'll make that, make that 100, which I think I only said once or twice in my cricketing career when I was
1: batting. So. <laughs> well, I highly recommend it. All the very best with it, as I say, and thanks ever so much uh, again for chatting today. It's been really, really terrific to talk to you. Thanks, Jake. And
0: thanks.
1: that's it for the Cricket Scotland podcast for another week. I'll be back next Monday, but until then, stay safe and I'll see you soon.